Good morning, Crowd family, and happy, happy Sunday. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 is today's text. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. We're now in part 14 of our series, Undivided, now in chapter 7. Now, as always, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And remember, apparently some of the believers in Corinth had not shaken all of their pagan past and were highly influenced by their sex-crazed culture, and they argued that sexual immorality was right and also proper for Christians, and they were trying to justify, trying to rationalize their behaviors. So Paul, what he does, he confronts them, and he does this because he's passionate about them living differently in their sex-crazed culture. And what he does, he reminds them, listen now, reminds them they were bought at a price. Now, the Corinthian believers had two arguments to defend, to justify, and, and rationalize sexual immorality. And the first argument is in verse 12, and it says, Everything is permissible for me, or all things are lawful for me. So what happened was they thought that since they were in Christ, they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. They, they now have, in other words, they now have unrestricted freedom. And Paul's response is, no, no, you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want. And he says, but not everything is beneficial. And Paul's telling him that you may have the freedom to choose, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are helpful. And just because you have the freedom to do it doesn't mean you should do it. Paul then repeats the phrase again and says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So what he does, and I love this, he closes the loophole by simply saying, okay, you might think you have the freedom to do certain things, but not all of them are beneficial. Not all of them are helpful, and nothing should have control over your body. Nothing should dominate you. Nothing should have mastery over your body. The second argument is in verse 13. It says, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And this is a popular Greek proverb that was used to apply to their sexual appetite. And so Paul answers them and says, but God will destroy them both. The relation between the stomach and food connection and between the body and sex connection are not the same. God will destroy both stomach and foods. And they are, not, they are, temporal, they are temporal in nature. But the body, what Paul's saying, but the body as a whole is destined to be eternal. Now, what Paul does, and I love this, is he answers their question by correcting their perspective, and he does this by giving them three reasons for sexual purity. And the first reason is the body is for the Lord. Remember that? The body is for the Lord. Verse 13, the end of verse 13 says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In verse 14, by his power... God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So your body's important to God. My body, your body, will be resurrected. The body is for the Lord. The second reason is the body is a member of Christ. Remember that? The body is a member of Christ. Now, when you came to Christ, you were integrated, united with Christ. Your bodies became members of Christ. Therefore, everywhere you go, Everywhere you go, Christ goes. Everything you do, he's right there with you. So what you do with your body cannot be separated from Christ. So as a believer, get this now, as a believer, when you engage in sexual immorality, what you're doing is you're dragging Jesus into the process. Not a good thing. 
because he's with you everywhere at all times. And there's a reason why the Bible speaks strongly against sexual immorality. Let's jump to verse 18. And Paul says, flee, run from sexual immorality. All the sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. It affects the whole personality. It affects the emotions. And the third reason is the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit lives and, and dwells inside of us, and since our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then we must, as now, make it a worthy temple to God. We ought to be very careful about desecrating or defiling the temple of God. Listen, my body, your body, is not our own. It belongs to God. God created our bodies. God owns our bodies, and he bought it and paid. He bought and paid for our bodies. Look at verse 20. You were bought at a price. Gosh, I love that. You were bought at a price. Therefore, therefore, honor God with your body. So, friends, we need to present ourselves at all times in every situation in such a way that pleases and glorifies God. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of today's message is Sex in Marriage. Say that, Sex in Marriage. Now, in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, we just reviewed that. Paul had to deal with two lacks an attitude toward sexuality within the church. And now he has to deal with two restrictive an attitude towards sexuality, particularly within marriage. So what I want to do is I want to set the stage for the text. The Corinthian believers were apparently, apparently had written a letter to Paul that contains some questions on matters on which they requested guidance and direction about marriage. Is it more spiritual to get married, or is it more spiritual to stay single? And one camp was encouraging sexual abstinence in marriage, and another camp taught marriage was wrong or unprofitable, so therefore you should stay single. You see, there was, there was a group of believers who were saying, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be close to God, then you shouldn't get married. You should, you should stay single for the rest of your life. In fact, this group of believers would condemn others who were married so that some of the married people thought they should leave their spouse and that this was their chance to get out of the marriage and be spiritual. Well, Paul wrote about this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, about false teachers they forbid people to marry. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Five points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, if you're ready, say yes. Point number one, here we go, is the provision. Write that down, the provision. And here we see the provision of marriage. Look at verse one with me. Now for the matters you wrote about. So Paul is now going to address some of their questions about marriage and also singleness. And he starts by quoting their letter. It is good for a man not to marry. A better translation is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, so Paul's like, singleness, singleness is good. It's okay to be single. It's okay to be unmarried. It's not a command. Okay, to be married. Okay, so it's, it's okay to be single. 
It's good, Paul says, for a man not to touch a woman. Now, when Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, remember, this is in context of a sexual relationship. So it's good to be single. It's not only good, it's not the, it's, 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 it's not the, it's not uh, the only good, it's not the highest good, but, but it's good, Paul says. Look at verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, speaking of sex outside the boundary of marriage, but since there is so much immorality, sexual immorality was everywhere in corn, friends, everywhere in Corinth, and, and a very real temptation for all of them there in Corinth, and, and sexual immorality is everywhere around us today, around us, and is a very real temptation for all of us. Listen to me, listen to me. 79%, get this now, 79% of evening TV contains sexual content. 77%. 77% of high school graduates had, have had sex. 73% of college students have had sex. 10% of college females and 17% of college males have had three or more partners. 79%, get this now, 79% of men view pornography on a monthly basis, that's four out of every five men. Listen, one in three visitors to adult websites, get this now, are women. Sexual immorality is all around us. It's a very real temptation for all of us and was for them in Corinth. And Paul has one solution to consider. Let's read on. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So in light of the danger of so in light of the danger, in light of the temptation of sexual immorality that was present in the Corinthian culture and in our culture as well, it's appropriate for a husband and wife to have each other, Paul's saying each other, in a sexual sense. Now, now, now follow me here. Paul, Paul's not saying sex is the only reason for marriage or the most important reason for marriage. He's not saying that. That's not his point. Remember, in context, he's simply answering their specific questions about marriage. And he's addressing those who said it's more spiritual to be single. And he's saying it's not more spiritual to be single. It's okay to be single, but it's not more spiritual to be single. And you see, Paul was stating the obvious, that everybody can't be single, especially in the, se- in, in the sex-oriented culture of Corinth. I mean, the desire... It's too strong. Temptations abound. Therefore, marriage, Paul's saying, marriage is necessary for most people. You see, Paul was, was for maintaining sexual purity, so he suggests the way to prevent premarital and extramarital sex is to get married and have a normal, healthy, stable sex life. So there's a lesson, and here's a lesson. The lesson is this. God invented sex. God invented sex. He made us, listen, he made us to be sexual beings. It was his idea. Someone say amen. It was his idea. You see, sex is a good thing. It really is. It's a good thing as long as it stays in the context and confines of marriage, of the word of God. Write this down, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says this. Marriage is to be held 
Love this. I love this. In honor among all and the bed, marriage bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Friends, listen, there's nothing unclean or defiling about sex within marriage between a man and a woman. And you see, Paul's lesson here is that your sexual relationship with your spouse is one of God's ways of keeping you from immorality. So to be married is a gift, Paul's saying. To be single is a gift. The problem, the problem is when married people try to act like single people and single people try to act like married people. That's the problem. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. You see, the question is not, are you married or are you single? The question is, are you his? Are you God's? Do you belong to God? And will you live that relationship to the fullest? That as a married person, I'm yours, God. That as a single person, I'm yours, God. That whether I'm married or whether I'm single, I will live unto God for his glory. Let's look at the text again. It says, Paul writes, each man, say man, should have his own wife, say own wife. And each woman, say woman, her own husband, say her own husband. Listen, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Genesis 2, 24, from the very beginning, God affirmed, God affirmed that marriage is between one man and one woman. And, and Paul is simply affirming what the Bible states repeatedly, which rules out polygamy and rules out same-sex marriage. Now, friends, we know that our culture is on a mission to redefine marriage. Biblical marriage. And I want to tell you, regardless of what our culture might say or how loudly they shouted, friends, the biblical definition of marriage always has been and always will be defined as between one man and one woman. God defined it. God designed it. God declared it. That settles it. Someone say amen. Point number two is a practice. We saw the provision. Now we see the practice within marriage. The practice the practice, and we see this within marriage. Look at verse 3. If you're still with me, say amen. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The message renders it like this. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy, love that, satisfy his wife, and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. So he's saying that a husband and wife owe it, owe it to each other to be physically intimate. There's a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage. The husband has obligations toward his wife and the wife has obligations toward her husband. Now listen, friends, listen. The emphasis here is not on what you get out of sex but what you do for your spouse. And friends, it's learning to think of your spouse more than you think of yourself. Now, I know this is difficult for us as men because men like to have sex on days that start with the letter T, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, today, and tomorrow, right? You see, the marriage relationship is this. I'm not in it for me. I'm in it for you. Marriage, listen now is a decision 
to serve and to satisfy the other, whether in bed or out. And sadly, sadly, you had some of the Corinthian believers who believed that even though they were married, it was more spiritual to abstain from sexual relations to try to be celibate, celibate while being married. Listen, friends, listen. That is a twisted view of sex in marriage. That view is not in the Bible. Now, Scripture gives at least five reasons, at least five reasons for marriage. Just write it down. The first one is procreation. Procreation. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says, God commanded Adam and Eve, what? To be fruitful and multiply. Procreation. The second reason is, is partnership. Partnership. Genesis 2, 18. Genesis 2, 18 says, Woman was created for man to be a helper suitable for him. Marriage is, is about a partnership. It's about partnership. It's about complementing each other, not competing with each other. It's partnership. And partnership between a husband and wife is one of the key ingredients Ingredients of, of ingredients of a good, healthy marriage. The third thing, it's a picture, picture, picture. It's a picture of, a, a, of, of the church. A picture of the church. Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 32. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. And then verse 32, Paul writes, this is a, a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Procreation, partnership, picture, and purity. The fourth reason is purity. It protects purity. It protects from sexual immorality by meeting the need for physical fulfillment. And the fifth reason is this. Pleasure. Pleasure. Proverbs. Proverbs 19. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 5 says this. Listen. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. That's awesome. What about the Song of Solomon? I mean, if you, if you read the Song of Solomon, it centers around the physical attractions and pleasure of marital love. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. Here, uh, she, um, we see what she says about her man, how she, she describes him. She says, my, my beloved, that's Solomon, a Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His, his hair is, is wavy and, and black as a raven. His eyes, his eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on base of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. 
Now listen to what she says in Solomon chapter 7, Song of Solomon, excuse me, Song of Solomon chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, what she says about, you know, about, um, what she says about her man. How beautiful. Excuse me, what, what he says about his woman, excuse me, what he says about his woman. How beautiful your sandal feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is, is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a, a mound of wheat enriched by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon by the gate of bath -Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Now that's not speaking about the shape of her nose, but the color of her nose. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your, your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. In fact, you should quote that to your spouse and see what happens. Yeah? My point is this. God created you. Right? God designed you and he made every single part of you, even your sexual parts. Listen, friends, listen. You're, you're designed to be stimulated, stimulated within the confines and the context of God's word, of marriage. It, it's it's God-given, and because it's God-given, it must be God-governed. C.S. Lewis said this, pleasure is God's invention, not the devil's. Someone say amen. Verse 4. You're still with me. Say amen. Verse 4. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Listen, your spouse owns your body. I'm going to say it again. Your spouse owns your body. But pastor didn't... didn't Last week's text say that our bodies belong to God. I mean, that our bodies are, are, are not our own, but God's. Yeah, that's right. But I want you to follow me here. In, in the physical sense, the physical sense, okay, you are a steward, a manager of your body. God loaned it to you. He loaned it to you so that, that's, that you are to take care of your body. That's in the physical sense. In the spiritual sense, God is over your body. He owns your body. In the marital sense, your spouse is. You own each other's body. It, it's, it's the signed transaction, friends. I'm yours and you're mine. And I want to say this. This doesn't mean that you demand your rights at all costs, but that you give up your rights. Say that. Give up your rights to meet the sexual needs of your spouse. Look at verse 5. Let's move on. Do not deprive, in other words, do not rob or defraud each other. From what? He's speaking about sexual activity. Do not deprive, rob, defraud each other from sexual activity, except by mutual consent and for a time. 
so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Do you get that? I want to stop there. Paul says that a husband or a wife should not deprive their spouse of regular sexual satisfaction, except that both parties agree that for a brief period of time, they will devote themselves, listen now, devote themselves to God's service and prayer. In other words, you can, you can fast from sexual activity for a moment, for a time, to come together as a couple and pray for specific needs. But after that, after that, friends, okay, you should resume sexual relationships. It's only for a period of time. Now, 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 why is sexual activity so important among married people? I mean, why, why should there be a continual fulfillment in the context of marriage? Why should there be, why should, uh, why should there not be long lapses of time between moments of sexual intimacy? Well, why? Well, we get our answer at the end of verse 5. Let's read that. Then, then come together again. So that Satan, here we go, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, Satan knows that if there, is, there are long lapses of time between sexual activity, he can tempt the spouse into sexual infidelity. Because he, Satan, realizes the self-control level is low. Now listen, abstinence in marriage is never to be permanent. Only for a while, but not permanent. Now I want to say this. Don't ever use sex. You got to get this. Don't ever use sex to manipulate your spouse. Listen, friends, sexual pleasure should be a tool to build one another up, not a weapon. This is not, not a weapon or a vice to manipulate or get back at your spouse, or to get what you want. When you do that, when you use sex to manipulate your spouse, you are going down a bad, bad path that can lead to more trouble. Are you with me? The provision, the practice, number three is the principle. Write that down, say that. The principle, and we're going to see here the principle of giftedness. Of giftedness. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I want to stop there. Now, Paul's not commanding people to get married. I mean, marriage is not a must, right? He established that. I mean, Paul has laid down the duties of all who are married, but he doesn't lay, lay it down as a duty to, that all should be married. Look at verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. In other words, unmarried and single. Now, I want to stop there because this begs the question, was Paul ever married? We don't know. We don't know. Okay? What we do know is that he was single at the time that he wrote this, and he remained single until his death. Now, although Paul was unmarried, okay, when he wrote this letter, he probably had been married, and we can say this because Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. In, in Acts chapter 26, to prove this, in Acts chapter 26, Verses 9 through 10, verses 9 through 10, in Paul's own words, says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, 
I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Get that? I cast my vote against them. You see, the logical place he would cast a vote is as a member of the Sanhedrin. An unmarried man could not be a member of the Sanhedrin. So Paul was probably married at one time. So this begs the question, what happened to Paul's wife? Well, we don't know. The scriptures are silent about her, and perhaps she left him when he got saved, or perhaps she died sometime before or after he became a Christian. We, we, we don't know what happened to his wife. What we do know, what we do know is that he was married before, and we know that he was not married when writing this letter. So, so since, and I want you to get this, so, so since Paul was married and now single, I love this, he was well qualified to speak of the relative gifts and responsibilities of both marriage and singleness because he knew both from his life experience. Isn't that cool? So let's read on. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, Another has that. One has this gift, marriage. Uh, another has that, singleness. Now, though Paul knew singleness was good for him, he wouldn't impose it on anyone. And you see, friends, get this now, get this now. Okay, the important thing is what gift one has from God. Either being gifted to singleness or gifted to marriage. Paul regards both marriage and both singleness as a gift from God. Listen, friends, listen, listen now. It's not God's will for everyone to be married. So, so there's no shame or reproach in choosing to remain single if that's God's will for your life. And I know some folks who remain single. They have the giftedness of singleness. Got it? Point number four, here we go, is the preference. Write that down, the preference. The preference. And here Paul gives advice to the unmarried and the widows, and the preference is to remain single. Look at verse 8. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. And Paul explains why in verse 32, and we'll get to that probably in a couple of weeks, because there are some advantages to being single. Listen, being married, you're preoccupied with you're, you're preoccupied caring for your your spouse, uh, for your kids. Preoccupied, excuse me, preoccupied caring for your kids. Uh, you're, you have certain schedules that you have to meet. You don't have a whole lot of freedom to do this or that. But if you're single, you have the freedom to keep your own schedule, the freedom to, to move around, to go wherever you want to go and to do whatever you want to do. Well, I'm married and I do that. Well, if you do that, friends, then you have a problem. Okay, but Paul is speaking that his preference is for you to remain single so you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do, to even serve God, to have the freedom to serve God, not be tied down to certain schedules or things. Number five, the last one, number five, and we're going to get more into uh, singleness in a couple of weeks, okay? Number five is the passion. Write that down. Say the passion. Listen, the passion 
The passion that cannot be controlled should lead to marriage. I'm going to say it again. The passion that cannot be controlled should lead to marriage. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, got it? The unmarried, the single or the widows cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul tells them that if they have a problem with self-control because they do not have the gift of celibacy, then it would be better for them to marry a person chosen by God for them than to continually struggle, in other words, to burn with the desires, passions of the flesh in that area. In other words, Paul is saying it's far better to marry and exercise the gift of sexuality in a legitimate manner than it is to practice fornication. Got it? I want to say this. This is not justification for running off and getting married quickly because you're burning with passion. No, 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 no. Okay? That simply, listen, that simply helps you to determine which gift God gave you. That's why Paul wrote that. In other words, if you're burning with passion, then Paul's saying singleness is not your gift. It's not your gift. Got it? Now I want to say this. Marriage is not something that should be rushed into. Friends, marriage is a serious thing. Marriage, this now is a major decision that requires prayer, lots of prayer, and caution. And many have rushed, many have rushed into a marriage and wound up divorced because they failed to answer some simple questions such as, is this person that I'm seeing right for me? Are, are we mature enough to be married? Are we ready to carry out the responsibilities of marriage? Are, are the circumstances favorable for a good, godly marriage? And how about this? Is this God's will for my life? Now, there are several things that single, we're going to talk about single, single Christians here now, several things that single Christians who, who feel their gift is being married yet haven't found a mate ought to do. First, you should seek a person you can love, you can trust, and respect, letting marriage come as a response to that commitment of love. Also, I want to say this, it's okay to be on the lookout for the right person. But the best way to find the right person is to be the right person. Listen, you need to concentrate. Listen, folks, you need to concentrate on being the person that God wants you to be rather, rather than being obsessed, obsessed by trying to find the person that God has for you to find. And also this, you should realize that until God gives you that right person or the right person, he, God, will provide strength to resist temptation. Someone say amen. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 13, Paul writes, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Say that. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also, love this, I love this, He will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. 
Listen, friends, listen. You should avoid listening to, looking at, and being around anything that strengthens temptation. You should train your mind to focus only on that which is good, that which is helpful, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I want to say this. God wants you to learn to be content in any state and to patiently, patiently wait on his timing. Listen, don't, don't, don't think God has cursed you. You're not university, got it? Instead, you need to look at it this way. In your singleness right now, as you're looking for someone that you can marry, God has blessed you at this time to work on you, to work on you, to mature you in faith and to use you for kingdom service. You have such freedom right now to serve God. Amen? That all being said, it's better to remain single than to choose a non-Christian partner. It's better to remain single than to marry someone who will hinder your spiritual growth. It's better to remain single than to marry someone for the wrong motive, such as to marry for financial security or for sex or, or power or prestige or, or fear of growing old alone or because it's accepted. Expected, excuse me, expected. It's better to remain single than to marry without being willing to give yourself to another completely. Listen, it's better to marry. It's better to marry if your life would be more complete with a mate. It's better to marry if God leads you to someone you love and who loves you. It's better to marry if your relationship will illustrate Christ's love for his church. It's better to marry if you are willing, listen now, if you are willing to spend the rest of your days giving, giving, more than receiving. Did you get that? So as we, we wrap this up here, if you're married, say amen. Come on, if you're married, say amen. If you're married, find out how best you and your spouse can serve God. There is nothing more beautiful and, and nothing that blesses my heart as a pastor here at CCF when I see a, a husband and wife serving together. It just blesses my heart. And if you are married and, and you're not serving yet in your local church here at Cry Out, you need to pray about finding a way so both of you can serve in the church. There's nothing more awesome than seeing married couples serve in the church. Find out, listen now, how you can be amazing instruments of God as a married couple. If you're single, say amen. Come on, if you're single, say amen. If you're single, serve God. Serve God. Don't be preoccupied with anything but God's work. Because as a single person, you have the freedom to be 
involved in the service of God's kingdom without being preoccupied with other things such as a married person. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's, man, there's so much to take in. There's so much to process from today's message. And Father, for those of us who are married, might we honor and serve you and, and honor and serve each other in our marriage, bringing glory to your name. And Father, for those who are single, might they honor and serve you and serve others, bringing glory to your name. In our marriages, Father, in, in our singleness, might others see you in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone say amen. Hey, listen, friends, uh, I, I hope you enjoyed the message. But before I, I close here and let you go, perhaps there's some of you who are listening right now, who are watching, and you never asked Jesus to come in your life. And you're saying, you know, Pastor, I, I want Jesus to come in my life. I want to receive him today. I want to follow Jesus. If that's you, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Okay, would you do that? Jesus, I invite you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. And I believe within my heart God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me this day. And from this day forth, I will serve you and honor you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, now, if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. Um, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org. We would love to hear from you if you decided to follow Jesus. So listen, I hope you have a wonderful day, Sunday, and that you're blessed. I love you, miss you, and uh, I'll see you next week as we continue in this series, Undivided. Love you. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye.